Hi, I'm Celia Fleischaker, Chief Marketing Officer with Verant, and today I'm joined by Paul Greenberg. I, Paul, welcome to the show. Hey, Celia. It's, of course, always great to be with you. It is great to be with you. Um, thank you, everyone, for joining us for this live event. Uh, in case you're not familiar with Verant, we're the customer engagement company. We help companies build enduring relationships at scale through the use of technology. We have thousands of customers around the world, including over 80% of the Fortune 100. And today, our guest on Book Club is Paul Greenberg, who, if you're not familiar with him, also known as fondly the godfather of CRM. Paul is an icon in, in the business. He's the founder and managing partner of the 56 Group. Uh, it's an advisory firm that does strategic services for CRM, customer experience, customer engagement. He wrote the book literally on CRM, CRM at the Speed of Light. It's used by a number of universities around the world. It's had multiple editions out, and it's called the Bible of CRM and of the CRM industry. Uh, Paul is very busy outside of um, advisory. He does, uh, you probably see him on CRM Players with Brent Leary. He does a column in ZDNet and um his latest book, which is what we're here to talk about, is The Commonwealth of Self-Interest, Business Success Through Customer Engagement. And I'd be remiss if I didn't say he's also a huge Yankees fan, love cats, and a great human. So thank you, Paul, for having uh, taking the time to talk about your book today. Oh, are you kidding? Anytime. Look, I just like hanging out with you, really. <laughs> I am so excited, right, about this half hour. <laughs> um you know, the, the book itself, we're going to talk through a couple different concepts, but first and foremost, just kind of setting the foundation, people tend to use customer experience and customer engagement interchangeably a lot of times in the market. And you you really, you, you set down definitions for them and differentiate between the two. So if you kind of just start us off talking about the difference between the two and how you define them, that would be great. Sure. Um, look, obviously, CX is kind of the big thing right now. And pretty much most companies, are, you'll see, have some form of customer experience. If they're a technology company, technology. If they're not, uh, they'll be have a vice president of customer experience. But ultimately, they're looking at impact on customers and what is going on. Now, if you're looking at definition, though, the interchangeable uh, interchangeability of customer experience and customer engagement is actually not legitimate. Um, there's a symbiosis between them that is, but not an interchangeable definition. So what customer experience is, if you're looking at the biggest picture around customer experience is important, is how a company feels, I mean, how a customer feels about a company over time. And, you know, and, and if you're looking at it a little more technically, you know, it's pretty much a lot of that impact comes from the last, engagement and the experience with that engagement that the customer had. So for example, you know, if you're, um, if you're looking to get something done mm -hmm. and over time, you always get it done with that company and then they mess up because your experience with that company has been at least good enough to want to make you continue to do business with that company. Mm -hmm. You probably give them a pass on that. But if that's the fourth time they screwed up out of the last six times, 
there's a really good chance no pass in fact if and in fact not only that um if you get a if you got even if they didn't screw up and you had four agents over that same period of time who were just generally rude or I- ignoring yeah. you completely that fifth time when the bad experience does happen then the net effect is you quit but that's what i mean it's how you feel about a company over time and then how it impacts things on the um on the uh on the customer and how they're going to then a- address you engagement right. is by definition uh the ongoing interaction between company and customer offered by the company chosen by the customer and keep in mind the key terms are ongoing interaction engagement is actually what a lot of people mean when they say customer experience it's that continued interaction so for example you know um I am, I am a, let's say I want to go do something. I want to ship, uh, I want to ship a package. Yeah. So I go over to the UPS store and I drop the package and I'm out of that store in two minutes. We, and which is how they're designed, by the way, mm-hmm. we'll get to what that means maybe later on. Um, so I'm very happy with that because I don't want to spend lots of time engaging with UPS personnel or dealing with multiple steps to send that package. I just want to take the package, drop it off, get a receipt and go. And they know that at the store level, it's different at the global service level. Um, And I leave. Okay. So what, what are we looking at? My engagement with UPS was what I did at the store, the actual activity of interacting with the people at the store and the effort and result of that. Right. My experience was good and it continued to be good because why it accomplished what I was looking to accomplish with UPS in the time I wanted to accomplish it. And right there is the distinction. Now, the one thing I will add as a caveat and last thing is that there are things, what I call consumable experiences. And that's more when you design an experience that's monetizable more often than not, that actually impacts somebody, um, but isn't necessarily a product purchase that, and it might come from a purchase, but not a product. So for example, the easiest examples in the world, which everyone will know are Disney or American girl, you know, American girl, for example, you go into a store, you have a doll already cost you 150 bucks, right? You have accessories around the hit, but there's a history around that doll, which was by the way, part of their consumable experience, right? They're creating, making the doll more human, more real. Right. And then, then you paid for all the, the, if it was a shaker doll, you paid for the shaker bed and the shaker rocker and the shaker. That's another $300 or $400. Then you go to the store and you, you watch a play with your doll. You eat lunch with your doll and you get the haircut with your doll. And guess what? The doll doesn't have a clue what you're doing. <laughs> but, I know. I have brunch with a doll at American Girl. I totally know what you're talking There you go. About. There you go. And I'm sure the conversation wasn't exactly scintillating over brunch, right? But I thought it was there too, just to make sure people understand. <laughs> right. <laughs> I kind of hope that was the case. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> well, well, if not, but of course you walk out $450 poor, right? It's amazing. But that's a, that's a consumable experience though. You didn't mm-hmm. end up, you might've bought some stuff, but you ended up going there for that experience of having that brunch, watching that play, getting the haircut. And then your daughter or your son, whoever the hell loves the doll, is just beaming from ear to ear. I used to actually bring this example up in my speaking audiences a lot. And I asked like 
I'm not joking. Over the years, thousands of people, would you do it again? And it's mostly, to be honest, mostly dads who are the ones raising their hand when I ask if they've done it. Um, and one dad raised his hand and said, no. And I said, well, then you're a Scrooge. That's all I said. That's how I responded. I said, then you're a Scrooge. Right? And that was the end of that. Right? So, but I mean, that's how the thousands of people who raised their hand, everyone else would do it again. Yeah, it's, a, I mean, it was good, right? Like, I mean, the whole time you're like, I can't believe I'm doing this, but we still talk about it. And she's in grad school now, right? So, yeah, wow. I'm still thinking about it. Um, still hasn't so digested the brunch. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so, this um, delightful experiences or delighting your customers, I want to move into this kind of idea of some myth busters because your book does this great job of laying out these concepts of people just like, oh, this is the way it is. And then you're like, not really. This isn't the best approach. And one of those is about, People always talking about, we want to overachieve with our customers. We would just go above and beyond delighting our customers um, when it comes to their experience with us. And, and you talk about it in the book. And I just wonder if you kind of explain your position on, on that idea. Well, yeah. I mean, look, any company that actually makes the claim that their mission is to delight all their customers all the time is either lying or completely unaware of circumstances around what they're actually saying, right? And that's about the only way I could put that. I mean, the reality is this, first, that's impossible. First of all, let's look at what delight even means. It typically means an exceptional, mm -hmm. joyful result that isn't expected again after it happens. Otherwise, it's not exceptional. It's just part of it, what ex expected. And once it's expected, it's not delightful because it's expected, right? The light is literally surprising by, oh, by definition. Uh, now, there's a people who make the argument, well, you know, if the job is done all the time and it's delightful, no, it's not. It's not the same. It's not how you feel either. You're just glad. You might be glad, but it's not delight. That's not like, wow, that was amazing. Uh, now, so first things first, the light by definition is impossible all the time. Every time. And if you try it, and, it, and you keep doing this thing mm -hmm. over and over, that becomes expectation. When that becomes expectation, the stakes are raised for what the light is. At that point, basically, there's a much bigger cost to a company right. when it comes to that. And then it raises again and raises again. Eventually, yeah, you delight your customers and then you go broke, right? So, but here's the real story. As human beings... Mm -hmm. We don't love companies the way we love our significant others. We don't. Uh, sorry, it's a different kind of... When you know you're Apple fanboys or whoever you want to talk to about it, yeah, they love Apple, but they don't, they're not in love with Apple, right? They're, they love the company. Why? Because they get cool stuff that they like using. But what, is to the, what about that? If that cool stuff that they like using was not useful, right. they wouldn't use it no matter how cool it looked. Right. Yeah. So in other words, I have a phone and my iPhone, this is a 13 Max Pro. Nice. Okay. And the reality is it's a great phone. Look, look at all my notifications. Right. So, uh, and the reality is though, I, if I didn't use that phone, it just looked cool. Not a piece of art. It's a phone right. and it can, it's artful looking, but, but so that's first thing. Second thing is as humans, when we interact with a company, we have a job that we want to accomplish, whatever it may be. It's called. There's an actual field of, of um, 
uh, it's a stra- strategy, business mm-hmm. theory, and so on called Jobs to be Done, JBTB, uh, JBTD. Um, I mean, JTBD, <laughs> right? That's right. Okay. J- it comes from, um, you know, service dominant logic and service design, all that whole universe is but jobs to be done. And what that says is this. A customer doesn't buy a product to buy the product. They buy a product to get something done. And when I'm interacting with a company, I'm not interacting with the company to interact with the company. I'm interacting with the company because I need that company to do something, right? And I, get, I will get from that company what I need to do whatever it is I want to do. And that right. may be, I want to buy something from you. You're the company I'm going to to buy this something. I don't need continual delight for that. I need to get in there, do the job, and get out, right? Like Amazon, what is one of the things people love about it? You can do it fast, really fast. Exactly. If if it took me six hours to do an Amazon thing, even with its biggest selection as they have, or six hours, let's even take 10 minutes. Uh, and I'm not interested in looking around. I just need to get something done. It takes me 10 minutes to find what I'm looking for. I'm not working with Amazon anymore. I don't care how nice it looks, how cool it is, how um, how hip it is. I, I'm not using it. I use these things to do the job. Your job as a company is not to delight the customer all the time. Your job is to delight them occasionally. However, to make sure whatever it is they need to get done gets done. And in the most effective, almost utilitarian way. Right. Um, So remember what I said about UPS? Yeah. There's a perfect example. I'm in and out of that store in two minutes. And that whole store is designed to get me in and out for two minutes, in two minutes. So think about it. On the right is all the supplies they ever need. I walk in, I walk to a counter. If it's a if it's an Amazon thing, I drop it at the counter. The guy scans it. He gives me a receipt. I walk out. If it's right. not an Amazon thing, he takes some information, gives me a seat. They'll take care of the rest. Like I walked in one time. They thought the box wasn't that good. So they said, here, here's a receipt. We'll, we'll rebox it. You go yeah. home and we'll take care of the rest. That's how they work. Oh, and it's deliberate. And they're franchisees, keep in mind. So that's right. how they work. That's what we're talking about. A job to be done gets done, not the light all the time. If you can say to the customer, we will help you do what you need to do in the time you want to do it, right. way better off than if you think, you, and you, that you can accomplish because 90% of that is typically automatable, even at scale, right? Yes. But, um, but the caveat is you have to know enough about the customer to know what they want done. And number two is, of course, you have to have the technology and the and yeah. also the personnel who can help them do it. If you have that, you help them get that job done, you got a, you got a great company that people will come back to and will find their experience to be um, excellent. Yeah, I totally agree. It's that understanding piece. Like there is technology today that can help you understand it. And that is so critical. Talking about finding things on Amazon, before we go to the next point, just I want to point out there is a link in the chat. If you want to snag one of Paul's books, they are tough to come by. Uh, They're not always in stock. And so there are 50 copies that we have available. And if you just hit the link from Katie Seek in the in the chat, you can you can register for one of those. That, wow, that almost sounded like I was doing a lead into a plug. <laughs> I know, just a little. No, but that was totally, you know, coincidence. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, thank you. One of the other things that, and this I call this almost my Esteban quote, right? Because I see him talking about this on LinkedIn all the time. This idea that 
a good happy customer employee makes a good happy customer and that you kind of equate employee and customer experience together. And, and I know that you have thoughts on the link between the two and if they really are something that you can pull together. I actually agree with Esteban on this one. And those of you who don't know Esteban, Esteban Kolsky, he's chief evangelist at SAP, but he's actually still at heart a very important industry analyst Absolutely. and uh, and one of both of our really dear friends. Um, so the idea of happy, you always hear that's, an, again, we the problem we always have is we deal with a lot of truisms and, and, and things that are clever, but not really accurate. So yeah. like, here's, here's the simple one. Happy employee equals happy customer, right? And everyone says, oh, that's obviously true. No, that's actually not obviously true. First of all, both of them can be true, but you can have happy employees, which is kind of the idea of that quote, mm-hmm. but doesn't necessarily have a happy customer. So let me make it very simple. All right. Um, I go online as a customer. I try to order something. It's really messed up. I can't order it. I can't find what I'm looking for. I decide I'm going to call customer service to help me find something. I call customer service. I have this lovely, delightful human being who I'm talking to. And, and he or she says, well, I, I really would love to help you, but the system's down. I can't do anything. <laughs> right? Okay. Am I happy? No. I'm, do I still find that person delightful and sweet and kind? Yes. And I'll basically say, and they'll go, of course, being happy and you know, being nice people, I'm so sorry. And my answer to them is, you know what? It's not your fault. However, it is the company's fault, not, Absolutely. but just not theirs fault. So, you know, you cannot, you cannot um, rip out all the things that go on in between that happy employee and that happy customer and, and just make some truest, you know, like create some, some, some pat statement that right. everyone's going to say, because it sounds like you're supposed to. Right. And the reality is, you know, if you conversely, of course, you have great technology and unhappy employees probably still going to get some uh, pretty unhappy customers. Right. Right. So uh, anyway, but um, so what we're saying here, what I'm saying here is just and Esteban, too, uh, is essentially that that is not strictly true. You still need happy employees. You should do that because you're a company who actually has humane values. Right. Right. You have to have humane values and you should be absolutely committed to happy employees. And your cus but your customers are happy when the system, including those employees, all that that whole approach you take works. Okay. And then they're happy. They're not happy because your employees happy. They're happy because what they're doing with you is working for them. And they're not really concerned about all your employees. They're only concerned with the employees that they happen to be communicating with, if any. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's um, so they're correlated, right? And it doesn't necessarily, one doesn't cause the other. Um, okay, I, one other, you know, one of the things in your book that I love is, is um, you have an, in a lot of the chapters, a guest essay from a thought leader or, or someone that, that, you know, on that topic. And, and one of the essays included a quote from Clayton Christensen about, the competitiveness of a company and where you put your focus. And and this idea, a lot of people that, this is not what he said, but a lot of people will say, you know, we just have to focus in on what we're really good at and we will be successful. And his quote really went to this idea that 
you need to focus on what your customers value. And it's really about the customers, not just what you do um, well. Like that's not the point. And I just would love to hear your thoughts on that because that's it's such a big idea for a company. And, and so many people talk about it as, as what the company does well versus what does the customer really value and need. In a, in a funny symbiotic way, there's a relationship there. And I'll explain mm-hmm. So first of all, let's look at value, period. What what? So your business value is one thing. Customers value something very different. What a business value is obviously are things like year-over-year uh, in, in, uh, revenue increases, profitability. Uh, if you're an unenlightened company, increase shareholder value. If you're an enlightened company, stakeholder value increases, and so on. What a customer values is not discounts and free products and things like that. They value feeling valued. Yeah. They want to feel valued. And a lot of people say, oh, come on, stop being so like idealistic and emotional. You know, they value things like discounts. I said, no, they don't. And I'll give you an example of what I mean. So let's say it's um, uh, January of 2022 and you get an email from a company you deal with all the time that says, hey, uh, CEO, we love you. You're the best customer in the world and we are going to give you a discount on a 20% discount on anything in the catalog you want. And you get this January, February, March, April, May, and June, and then it stops. Okay. So keep in mind, it's really nice letter, 20% off. Keep that 20% up here. All right. Now it's January, 2022. And this one's going to be pure fiction, but you'll understand uh, you get another, I get an email from a company and it says, dear Celia, you're a putz. You're bothering us. We're sick and tired of you. I'll tell you what, we'll give you 30% on anything uh, you want off in the catalog as long as you shut up. <laughs> right. So, and you get this January, February, March, April, May, and June. So let's look at each scenario in July. In the first scenario, are you still a customer? Like, yes. Use yeah. my thirty percent. No, the twenty percent would be the <laughs> oh, first one. Right? right? You're, you're absolutely. You're, all right. In the second scenario, since you don't have that deal anymore, are you still a customer? The thirty percent. It's gone now. Oh no. Yeah. Exactly. It has nothing to do with the discount. It has yeah. to do with how they treat you and what they think of you. Now that leads to a couple of things. The first thing it leads to is in order to value you. They have to provide you with information that is relevant to you, that shows that effectively they know you well enough, which allows you to feel that they value you, meaning they're making, giving me choices, which is where it goes offered by the company, chosen by the customer, my engagement definition. They're giving you choices, which they can afford to give you, as opposed to ones they can't, again, delight all the time. Right. Uh, Offer you choices that they can afford to offer you given the constraints that every company has, which is they all have limits. And you are given 10 choices and you look at all 10 and you go, wow, every one of those is a, a good choice. I'll take this, this, and this. And, and two things happen there. One is they show you they know you because all the choices are relevant. We're right? understanding and, you, yeah. But the other side of it is they leave choice in your hands. You're mm. saying, here's pick these three, make these four. 
ultimately the customer still has to control his own experience and journey with you. You never own the customer journey. The customer owns the customer's journey all the time. And so you have to provide those conditions and then the customer will feel, and it is feeling here. We're not talking Mm -hmm. about numbers or math. We're talking about the right brain fully. I mean, I'm super right brain to the point that I didn't even know there was a left brain at some point. Not only that, I always thought the right brain was this, which is actually <laughs> the left brain, right? Right. I just pointed my own right brain, right? Where I thought it was. That's how bad it was. So that's what I'm saying. So that's how you start looking at these things and you start yeah. getting a much better picture of value. Okay. That's the first thing. And, you know, beyond that, with, with say, a Clayton Christensen yeah. approach, being good at what you do isn't isn't only who you are and what you need to do. So the other thing is, as a company, right. your responsibility is to show them what kind of company you are, meaning you're a company who I can, say, align my values with, and then right. younger generations especially, that's mm-hmm. super important. But even more, th- or even as much as that, um, you're a company who understands ecosystem. So let's say you do the best you can do with what you do. Yeah. But the customer to Clayton's uh, idea says, well, th- this is what you do. This is what I want. Yeah. I'm sorry, I'm going off camera, but there's a lot I want. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, right. So you have to say, okay, as a company, what does that mean for my strategy? And that's where strategies around platforms and ecosystems come in. Right, because ecosystems yeah. allow you to expand that good thing you do with a lot of other with partners with um, with um, with other things you're developing yourself with things you now need to build because the customers are pretty demanding about, it. but also with partnerships and alliances that allow the customer to come in at, with you as a core and see all the other things that they need within the context of you as a core that right. they can get even if you're not the ones directly doing them. And that's that's part of a contemporary strategy that allows customers to feel valued and at the same time, get the value they want from you, right? So you have to be flexible enough as a company to, to allow the building out of those ecosystems. And it's really important. That, that's the subject for a whole other discussion. That's a huge how to topic. We talk yeah. so much about that and the, the need for a broad ecosystem and, and a platform that's open that allows you to expand. And Part of it is because of the next question I have, and, and just I know we don't have nearly enough time, but in a couple minutes, you know, you published the book in 2019. The world kind of turned upside down after that. And I'm just curious how you think engagement has changed since. Public- well, okay, so let's take this two phenomena one which is not particularly related to coronavirus, and the other one is. Um, the first one, which isn't, is very simple, really. Um, which is we're in the midst of a massive generational power shift right now. My mm-hmm. generation, which are baby boomers, we're on our way out. Actually, we're on our way out 10 years after we should have been leaving, right? We just hung around a long time. Um, then there's Gen Xers who kind of still run most of the major companies, but right. they're banned with a size of the generations like this small. Mm-hmm. Even baby boomers are this big. Then you have, so that's one, and our, that generation is, starting to contemplate retirement, move, right. move around, do other things. Millennials are now not only, you know, my original typical being a baby boomer, I had originally, I was sick and tired of millennials when they were young, 
right away, <laughs> right? It's <laughs> like, okay, if I have teen children, I don't need to see them acted out in the entire world all the time. But now they are full grown adults with fully formed ideas who are 40 years old, who have families and who literally um, make decisions at companies. And some of them are, yeah. a lot of them are C-level, but mm-hmm. very few are running the big companies. And then you have Gen Z who now have, I think in North America alone, $143 billion worth of wow. buying power based on the fact they've entered the workforce, not because they're dependent on parents' allowances. And how those guys can create, distribute, and consume, uh, create and consume content right. is very big deal. All right. Second thing on Corona, during cause of coronavirus, cause of COVID. Um, we've been on... Uh, We've been using digital tools for almost two years to become universally accepted. It's changed how work is going to occur, things like that. We all know that. So what that's led to for engagement is it led to much, and because somewhat the video, uh, the video audio stuff has distanced the personal interaction a bit, not entirely, more less so than I think people say, but nonetheless still somewhat. It's led to a much more... Um, a definition of engagement that requires businesses to think about getting their their customers and their prospects to participate with them, not just to engage on the simple interaction level, but to participate a lot more. I mean, avenues for participation have to be open. Have to be open. So, for example, you know how living theater works, right? A hundred years of it, really. The audience is the play, and they try to engage the audience by involving the audience. The idea is. Several companies are very good at involving their audiences, whether they're customers, prospects, or even people who just are looking to them as advisor, you know, trusted advisors. Right. They, but they engage people through participation. So, for example, we have a bunch of a few LinkedIn comments or social media comments here. The interesting thing is that if if we can't do this in this show, by the way, it's set up, but at one, let's say participation level yeah. would be, we really like a chain of, of thought going on from one person. So we send them the link and say, join the show. And now that's, I've seen you do one. that on players and it's very cool. You pull them out of the audience and they become yeah. part of the show. Yeah. And there's a million other ways to do it that are less, say less direct, but mm-hmm. nonetheless participate engagement is no longer just ongoing interactions, but, but needs to be considered and start building the, the, the infrastructure you need for that, for uh, ongoing interaction and participation. Yeah. I love, I love the living theater idea. That is great. I know we're out of time. We knew we would run out of time with this. I, know. I do want to say. Look, we, you and I run out of time when we're just having coffee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no surprises here. Um, I, I am looking forward to seeing you at latest in person next June at our Engage events. Um, oh, we're so looking with forward to that. With you and Brent. I'm really excited about that. Hope to see you before that. But thank you so much. And if you haven't, um, here I'll, the book, like go get the book or use the link in our um, chat to get a copy yourself. But thank you, everyone, for being here. Thank you, Paul. Really appreciate uh, it. As always, a total pleasure seeing you. Always. Loved it.